0: Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me
1: voices. Good afternoon and welcome to Voices in Leadership, a series focusing on the nexus of science and leadership to create positive change in public health. I'm Eric Anderson, the deputy director of this program, and I have the privilege of introducing our distinguished guest today. Drew Faust grew up in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia and she said of her upbringing that I felt very much that I lived history because of the many historical sites near her home. Inspired by her surroundings, she became a celebrated scholar of the antebellum South in the Civil War era and even made some history herself. Drew Gilpin Faust is the 28th president of Harvard University and a Lincoln professor of history. She is the first woman in Harvard's history to serve as university president. As president, Faust expanded financial aid to improve access to Harvard College for students of all economic backgrounds and advocated for increased federal funding for scientific research. She pushed her administration to prioritize diversity and inclusion, both within the student body as well as the faculty. Faust broadened the university's international reach and raised the profile of the arts on campus, embraced sustainability, launched edX, the online learning partnership with MIT, and promoted collaboration across academic disciplines and administrative units. As she guided the university through a period of significant financial strain. During her successful tenure, President Faust has championed the work of the Chan School of Public Health. In 2010, she announced the elevation of global health to a university-wide priority. It is fitting that she returns to this studio today in her final weeks as president to discuss her leadership and support for public health. Before I turn this discussion over to our moderator, our own Dean Michelle Williams, please join me as we welcome President Drew Faust to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you.
0: President Faust, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. And I'd like to extend a warm welcome to those of you here in our in-house audience and the many of you who are online watching us from around the world. This is a tremendous opportunity for me to have an opportunity to talk with you this afternoon, um, President Faust. And I'd like to start by asking you to reflect a bit on your incredible tenure as president of Harvard as you prepare to pass the baton of leadership on to incoming president um, uh, Larry Bacow. If you could. Think with us a bit about what you see, foresee as the challenges that institutions of higher learning are going to be facing in the near future.
2: Thank you, Michelle. It's wonderful to be here and to be back here. And The school is such an important part of Harvard University, an important part of the world, and I congratulate you on all you and your colleagues are doing. This is a signal time, I think, for higher education in a, a number of ways. and. What happens in the next decade or so is going to be critical to the kind of leadership that the United States has had in higher education, to the role that knowledge and research has played, not just in this country, but around the world. I would say one of the foremost issues is the kind of critical stance so many people are taking towards higher education, Mm -hmm. doubting its efficacy, its purpose, seeing it as something that should be understood as a private rather than a public and shared good, Mm -hmm. challenging us uh, about the cost of higher education, challenging us about the openness of our campuses to a variety of viewpoints. And so I see many ways in which we need to explain our value and our values more fully, and to communicate better with the wider world. There are also things we need to do that respond to some of those criticisms in substantive ways. The issue of college cost and university cost generally is an important one. Though we need to recognize the traditional partnership between the public sector and the private sector in Mm -hmm. funding those costs, those contributions from the public sector have diminished in many cases, particularly in state-based higher education systems, Mm -hmm. much to the detriment and, and squeezing, I believe, of what universities are able to do. Nevertheless, I think we need to ask ourselves some important questions about cost. Another fundamental issue on our campuses is that as we have extended our reach far more broadly to much more diverse populations, and at Harvard we've seen this quite dramatically even over the last decade with the extension of financial aid across the university, but particularly in the undergraduate program. It's brought in a very different group of students demographically, Mm -hmm. many of whom have not come from families where College was an experience. They're first-generation college students or first-generation graduate students. And their expectations may be different. Their needs may be different. uh, And we need to understand how to make all of those individuals feel that they're fully a part of our universities. We bring them into this community. We need to make sure that they can flourish and fully participate. So how do we build community out of such diverse Mm -hmm. uh, people of diverse origins? I think this is a beautiful challenge because it enables us, in my view, to address an ideal that is something we are deeply committed to. But the challenge reminds us every day that it's something we're aspiring to, not necessarily something we have already reached. Another area um, in which higher education is challenged is in the future of research. We have just, in the recent budget bill, gotten a very nice reinforcement of the commitment of the federal government to research. But the administration's budget was not so generous. We have almost a 9% increase in this budget that was passed in um, funding for the National Institutes of Health. Uh, That's one wonderful set of um, parameters that we can see as an expression of support. Mm But there were proposals from the administration and others to sharply reduce funding for research. At a moment when science can accomplish so much, at a moment when the kind of tools available for scientific research will enable us to move forward so much more rapidly on the issues of health and welfare and well-being that your school is committed to, not to have the resources available is such uh, an upsetting reality for the talented individuals thinking about going into science? Are we going to keep them in the field? And for those mm-hmm. who have devoted so much of their lives already to becoming the wonderful researchers that they are. So support for science and research going forward, I think, is a, another issue. There are lots and lots of others, but I think that's a, yeah. a rich yeah. array to begin with. Yeah, that
0: is a very rich array to begin with. And what I'd like to try to do now is to focus on public health, schools of public health. Um, at 2014 September, you famously declared um, that we were in a public health moment. And I wanted to ask how do you foresee um, schools of public health um, leveraging that moment going forward? Um, are there um, areas of opportunities that we should be rising to the occasion to address um, in the near future?
2: Well, I have had a kind of romance with the School of Public Health since I became president and had the privilege of getting to know it better. Because it seemed to me it represented so many of the opportunities and ideals that were at the heart of where a university should be going. Mm -hmm. One was the interdisciplinary nature of public health, that it draws on so many different kinds of knowledge at a time when that is increasingly the direction of so many other fields as well. Secondly, that it. Has such an extensive reach. It has a global impetus because we are all joined. A political boundary does not protect us from epidemic disease or bad air or any of the other kinds of health challenges that we share mm-hmm. as a worldwide community. And it seemed to me the commitment of the school to that set of principles was essential as well. And then What I've been struck by is I've seen so many students across the university develop an interest in the field of public health. This is very vivid among our undergraduates. And their enthusiasm has led to the establishment of a minor, a, a secondary field in global health, which is one of the biggest in the college. People today, young people today, want to have an impact. And if you're going to be a physician, you certainly have an impact. But it tends to be on one patient or two patients or three patients or a dozen patients. And public health offers an opportunity to have an impact on a whole population. That's very attractive to our world-changing students mm-hmm. who are committed to having the kind of impact that, that um, is so ambitious and so aspirational. So I think that makes it a public health moment as well. What can you do, you ask? Well, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, and it, it's something we've talked about a little bit, Michelle, in, in our dean's meetings, is as we consider the worldwide impact of public health and we consider the ways in which we all are being so criticized within the United States in terms of higher education and its mm-hmm. accomplishments, I'm eager to see more communication and maybe more action as well on public health issues domestically. Mm-hmm. Oh, the opioid crisis obviously is one yes. you're yes. very involved in. I think you have a huge role to play in this, and one on an issue that is so at the heart of what things are people are thinking about right now. If the impact of public health on that crisis can be understood, public health is going to be the hero of the moment mm-hmm. for everybody. But there are a lot of other issues like that I think across the country that our country that are ripe for yeah. understanding by public health and communication. Um, by public health yeah. experts to a wider population about what, what can be done. Yeah.
0: These are big challenges. And opioid, um, really, a top um, challenge that requires partnership and that requires um, really working across a number of mm-hmm. different disciplines. And public health is is the place, mm-hmm. that big tent, that can mm-hmm. bring together the disciplines to really tackle these problems. Drew, I wanted to change. To, um, um, directions for a minute and come back to um, part of your response to my first question. Um, and it, it relates to the Presidential Task Force on Inclusion and Belonging. This I understand and I appreciate having been a part of the community that you brought together to really take on this um, challenge. Um, it's, it's, it's a very important topic, particularly t- now um, as our campuses become more diverse and so I wondered if you could share with us a little bit the underlying impetus for the task force and what the major findings of the task force mm-hmm. has been. So
2: the impetus there were multiple impetuses. One was what I described earlier, this sense that our community has changed dramatically in the past generation, and that our structures, our responses, our understandings had not entirely kept up with mm-hmm. those changes, leaving many students feeling that although they were present, they weren't fully included. It goes back, in, I think, in some ways to what W.B. Du Bois said mm-hmm. in the late 19th century. "Was He always felt in but not of Harvard. Mm-hmm. I think there were too many people on this campus who felt or feel still, unfortunately, in but not of Harvard. So that was the set of questions. Beyond creating a demographically diverse population and making sure that you have representation from a wide range of communities, how do you make those communities integral to the experience uh, of, of the university? So that was the first impetus. The second impetus was a bit of an organizational one in that ever since I became president, I felt that the um, offices and the experts and the responsibility for addressing these questions was lodged in the schools, Mm -hmm. and that That made them somewhat siloed. They didn't learn from one another. And that there wasn't the capacity at the central administration to deal with these issues. So I wanted both to bring people together across the schools to share more, Mm -hmm. to streamline some of the approaches that could perhaps be done best, not in isolated ways, but together. But I also wanted to see what kind of capacity and structures we ought to have at the center to make sure there were eyes on this. It was a priority. It was being driven all the time in an organizational way. So those were really two uh, major concerns that led me to develop the task force. And I also felt that when we think about diversity, that it is so much more diverse than we had been defining it. And that actually people across the campus have parts of their identity, parts of their origins, parts of their reality that make them feel marginalized at one moment or another, or maybe every moment. And so I wanted us to think broadly Mm. across the categories, of course, of race, ethnicity, religion. But we also put in there disabled status, sexuality, um, and political Political viewpoints. Because there are many people on this campus who've said to us quietly. I don't feel that I can express my ideas uh, freely in a group, that I am a minority in what I feel, and therefore I don't want to speak. Mm. That's terrible. We ought to be a cacophony of voices and arguments and points of view, respectfully articulated, of course. But if people feel they can't speak, we're not being the kind of university we ought to be. So to cast this Mm. question of inclusion in a much broader way, so those were sort of the three Driving purposes of having this particular task force, which included staff, faculty, students, um, everybody, every yeah. element of the community, which was another part of it as well. It shouldn't mm-hmm. just be focused on one or another mm-hmm. sector of of the
0: community. And the major so the next major steps.
2: findings. Um, I urge people to have a look at this task force report. It's online. And I think there's one major part of it that has such relevance well beyond our own boundaries. And that is the linking of the issues of academic freedom and free speech that have been so much in the press with the issues of diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And saying these are not polar opposites as they're often cast in the news media, but rather, as I suggested a moment ago, if you truly wish to have uh, academic freedom, you have to have many voices articulated. And so diversity is essential to the kind of academic goals we have. And the way that is argued and put together in this report, I think, is quite brilliantly done and worthy of widespread attention. There are a lot of very specific principles and actions that are recommended, some of them administrative, some of them having to do with mental health services, some of them having to do with symbols on our campus. Mm-hmm. A room full of portraits of the founders of Harvard does not include right. faces that look like most of the people who are on this campus now. So thinking about a variety of these things, and, and I responded with a number of immediate actions and some longer term strategic longer-term strategic actions that I think will help address the purposes of the of the task force
0: speaking of strategic words matter and i so appreciate the title pursuing excellence on a foundation of inclusion Mm -hmm. Um, it's powerful again
2: uniting those two things very closely one requires
0: the other yes Um, so this is a voices in leadership um, event and so i want to turn my questions to leadership and my first question uh, relates to asking you if you could speak to a particular challenge that you've encountered um, in your journey as a leader that you might share with our our students who are aspiring um, to ascend to roles of leadership in their own careers. So this would be a general
2: level, not a problem. Okay, a particular challenge of leadership. I guess for me, a challenge of leadership is how much to push and how much, I guess, how much carrot and how much stick? <laughs> <laughs> um, not that a university president has a whole lot of sticks. They're or dean. Lo- <laughs> or dean. Um, ca- and sometimes not a lot of carrots either. <laughs> but what is the moment in which to draw a line and just say, this is not acceptable, mm. or this is cannot be, and to push back? And I think being a woman makes me all the more conscious of that. because. Mm. Mm. Um, I believe that aggressiveness can be more acceptable from a man than a mm. woman. A woman is seen as twice as aggressive as she actually is, I and mean, if you sort of blinded out the, mm. the action or the words. And so trying to figure out the balance between right. cajoling and coercing.
0: Coercing, yeah. Words matter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But I would say that my job, and I bet this is true of your job too, so much of it is retail politics. Because that, if it works, is so much more effective than having to resort to some form of coercion, minimal as the tools Mm -hmm. available to Mm -hmm. us might be. But um, it means that everything is is work to use words, to use attitudes, to use examples to try to persuade. It's very
0: important. So I don't know that many of you in the audience know that when President Faust was an undergraduate, she chose to leave, I think it was exam week.
2: It was my midterm exam. It was
0: midterm exam, first semester.
2: Second semester
0: of my freshman year. Left the safety of her campus at Bryn Mawr to go and march on Selma. And so I wanted, and I've been inspired since the moment I heard this story as part of President Faust's history. So I get an opportunity to ask you if you could share with us how that fateful decision that you made as a freshman at college, um, that experience and the decision and the experience that follows helped to shape your career, your leadership trajectory as as you matured into the role um, of becoming a professor, uh, dean, and the 28th president of Harvard University.
2: Well, let me give a little context about why I would come to make such a decision. I grew up in Virginia in a sharply segregated society that appeared to me very unjust at an early age. I've puzzled about why I was so swept up in that notion of injustice, because it was not something that my parents were particularly concerned about. They accepted the mores of the community in which we live. And I think the reason for it, now that I've spent some time thinking about it, is that I was the only girl in a family of four children. I had three brothers. And as I was growing up, I kept being told they could do things I couldn't do. Mm. And it just infuriated me. (laughs) And I think that that made me sympathetic to a much broader social situation in which I would come to Mm. realize that some people got to do some things and other people didn't. In the aftermath of Brown v. Board, when there was a lot of stuff on the news about segregated schools, I suddenly realized my school was segregated. And I thought that was just the way it, you know, it never occurred to me that black people were not permitted in my school. Mm. This is, I'm, you know, nine years old, seven years old, eight years old. Awareness. And that was shocking to me. And so I wrote a letter to President Eisenhower out of the blue, (laughs) never telling my parents, (laughs) saying he had to support integration. I later found this letter in the National Archives. Oh my I mean, it's in the—it's actually in the Eisenhower Library, wow. uh, archived in the Eisenhower Library. Part of it. Um, when I was here at Harvard, I found it in like 2003. It was amazing to see. But I'd had this kind of concern about civil rights issues. Yeah. From an early age. And the summer before summer, summer of 1964, I spent with a Quaker group in the South, and we were in Birmingham and Orangeburg and a number of sites where civil rights activities had taken place or were taking place. And so the civil rights activism was a real face to me. Mm -hmm. You know, the people who had. Lived on Dynamite Hill and had been bombed in right. Birmingham, or the nine year old in the family I stayed with in Orangeburg who'd been in jail at age nine. So it had a, a tangible reality for me. And in the spring of my freshman year, when I started watching what was going on, and the Bloody Sunday took place, right. and our about to be commencement speaker, John Lewis, had his head bashed in, I just couldn't stand it. I thought, if people don't stand up, what, what becomes of all of us? And so it was a, almost as if I had no choice. Mm-hmm. You know, To mm-hmm. be the person I thought I was, I had to get up and do that. It's a symptom of youth, I think, to feel, often anyway, to feel that passionately about something, that there is no choice. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid nothing has seemed or few things have seemed quite so vividly imperative to me. Everything got more complicated and complex as I got older, and everything had nuance. This was just, you have to go. Mm -hmm. So um, my then boyfriend and I got in a car and drove, and left Pennsylvania, and drove alternate 100 miles. And we got to Atlanta, Georgia, and we were exhausted. And I'd been in Atlanta the summer before, so I knew how to find the Morehouse parking lot. And I thought, we'll, we can go sleep in the Morehouse parking lot. No one will bother us. Well, we were asleep in the car in the Morehouse parking lot, and this guard knocks on the window and says, What the heck are you doing here? And we said, We're on the way to Selma. And he said, God bless you. Yeah. Mm. 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 So I went to Selma, and that was the the first march, the Bloody Sunday march. Um, later, there was a general march that you could march in for the first day, and then the, the um, judge in, in Alabama had said then there could be only 300 marchers until they got to Montgomery. And then the last day, people could march. So we marched the first day. And then so we weren't allowed to march. And we went home. But we stayed We stayed with a family that night in rural Alabama. And I, I'll never forget how generous and lovely they were to us. But we marched out of Selma over the Pettus Bridge. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we were very glad that as we had driven down there, we heard, I guess we were in South Carolina when we heard that Lyndon Johnson had nationalized the Mm. Alabama National Guard, Mm. which was a lifesaver. I think it would have been a bloodbath otherwise. Mm. And I had actually an incident. When we got to Selma, we parked our car, and we were walking over to the Brown Chapel where the rally was being held before the uh, departure on the march. We were walking by two Alabamians who were National Guardsmen. And one of them just hauled off and slugged me in the breast as we were walking by. Just as a, you know, I'm nationalized, but I'm letting you know I'm not happy about this. So um, it was quite an experience. So what were my leadership lessons about that? Um, I guess a passion for issues of equity and justice that seemed to me so embodied and exhibited by the people like John Lewis who had undertaken that journey. Um, a hope that even though I do think as you get older, your life gets more complicated, issues get presented to you in more complex ways, that I could try to hold on to at least a bit of that clarity and singularity of purpose mm-hmm. that I think mm-hmm. so often, not always, but so often is the province of, of the young. Yes. Um, those would be a couple of them. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that context. And um, the clarity of purpose is something I think we're witnessing with uh, the young kids in Parkland. Yep. And as you yes. share with us your experience and that clarity of purpose and that unshading, the unvarnished truth, yep. uh, I think I see that in the, the young people mm-hmm. in Parkland, mm-hmm. Florida. Thank and you. And also, I
2: think it's when you're that age, you have a sense. And I was, I guess, exactly their age. I was 17. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a sense that you're being given a world that isn't the world you want to be given. And you want to change that. And and you you know you're going to own this world, and you want to own a different world from the one that's being handed to you. And that's an important part of it, too. President
0: Faust, we are approaching the end of this session, and I can't help but ask, what's next?
2: Well, uh, as of July 1st, I'm no longer president of Harvard. And what I would like to do, I have a sabbatical. And I'd like to see if I can be a historian again. I've felt um, a loss a little bit of a chance to dig into a subject and try to write about it in a way that uh, illuminates the past, but also illuminates the present. And I wonder if I still have the capacity to do that. My field has changed a lot. The tools to do research have
0: changed a lot. I've changed a lot. You can go back to school. I'll see. I'll see <laughs> how that goes. I'll see how that goes. Yeah, that's fantastic. All of the tools. All of the tools um, for, for doing the research. I'm
2: like Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> <laughs> I had a session with a research librarian last week. It was
0: miraculous. (laughs) You don't have to leave your desk. No. (laughs) Well, we have been so fortunate to have you as our 28th president, um, to have you um, support the work that we do here at the school um, by helping us recognize and celebrate the public health moment that just continues, um, and so I I can't thank you enough um, for being here with us um, this afternoon, but also for your incredible no. leadership of Harvard. Well, so thank, thank you. you.
2: Let's make it a public health century, at least. Not I love moment. that. <laughs> That's on Good. record. <laughs> yeah. I like that a lot.
0: <laughs> um, so. This has been a terrific session, and I would like to thank President Faust for sharing her time with us. I also would like to thank you here in the audience, um, both in uh, in the audience in the studio here and those of you online. I'd like to also encourage you to please join us next um, when we have our Voices in Leadership event on Wednesday, June sixth, and we are we will be hosting president of the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Tom Mahalovic, And so, again, please join me in thanking President Faust. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.